Well, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, many new faces here. Uh, I had opportunity to speak here uh, on a Sunday morning. I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, and it's good to be back with you again. Uh, it's really a privilege uh, to be able to address you. Uh, it's funny, over the last uh, bit, as Ryan was speaking, uh, I was reminded of, of something that happened this summer to me. Uh, currently, as Pete mentioned, there's a bit of a transition at our church, and I, I actually have yet to preach since being installed as the senior pastor, so this Sunday, tomorrow, will be my first sermon there uh, after being installed. But nonetheless, um, this summer, it was just me, and I, d- I didn't have an adult Sunday school teacher, and so I decided we were going to do a DVD series. And so we did Alistair Begg during Sunday school, and, and he was going through Romans 12. is excellent. But I remember just Sunday morning after Sunday morning, just this uneasiness in my heart as I listened to Alistair Begg and then thought, okay, they're, they're about to go listen to me. Uh, and I was feeling a little of that as Ryan spoke, just uh, what a wonderful meditation, what clearly gifted brother. And, and so I've just spent the last hour praying for self-forgetfulness and, and freedom to preach uh, because I was just so well served and, and I'm more aware of myself than I should be right now. I want to pray and then we'll begin together. Let's pray. Father God, would you send now your spirit Father, would you enliven my words, and more particularly, would you, even as you've promised to bless your word by your spirit in the midst of your people, would you, maybe even for the first time, for one here, create spiritual life? Father, would you sustain spiritual life through your word now as we look into the Old Testament? Would you bless our study, and would you bless us even as we study? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you would describe yourself as a cut-to-the-chase kind of reader. Uh, I, I think maybe, maybe schooling forced my hand, maybe it's just a general impatience in my life, but I tend to be kind of a cut-to-the-chase kind of reader. And what I mean by that is, is, is I just find myself, if, if the article's long, just kind of flipping to the back and reading the conclusion or, or kind of skim reading to like get the main point and then get to the, you know, the, real, the real meat of it. Or uh, if I think back to growing up, uh, maybe some of you have seen these books. They have the uh, Create Your Own, uh, Choose Your Own, rather, Adventure books. Have you read one of these? So they're usually like teen or young adult novels, and at some point in the story, you've got to decide if, if the main character is going to do this or this. And if you choose A, you flip to page 17. If you choose B, you flip to this page. Right? And as I was reading, I almost always chose the more risky route because I wanted them to die, and I wanted it to be over. You know, I, I, just had to, I just wanted to get through the book. It's not that I just, I just have an impatience as a reader. And, and I think there's a lot of things that play into that. Maybe you find that kind of impatience in yourself when you think in terms of, of your own Christianity, your, your own discipleship, your own following of Christ. A kind of impatience, a kind of, let's just cut to the chase. Let's, let's get to the, the good stuff. Let's get to the results, right? This can, this can affect how we read the Bible, certainly. It can affect how and whether we, we study doctrine. It can affect uh, how we think through our Christian discipleship. So, 
So maybe we come to the Bible and we just, we, we move towards the more accessible parts. Right? So maybe if you were honest, you would say, well, I'm really just a Psalms, Proverbs, and New Testament kind of Christian. That's just how, that's how I approach things. Because I, I just want to get, I just want to cut to the chase. I just want to get to the point. Or maybe uh, you'd rather read. I, I, I find this inclination in my own heart. I'd rather read my favorite author or speaker on a passage of scripture than read that passage of scripture. And I, and I confess that to you. At times I, I feel that. And, and maybe, maybe even in, if you're a parent like me, so I have a daughter who's three, and that's what I call active parenting years, uh, every moment, right? So even in my parenting, there's a temptation for me to just kind of cut to the chase. Like, like I, want, I want you to change. I want results. Let me, let me emphasize the commands here. Let me tell you what you did wrong and what you need to do right. And, and we can run right to the chase, the chase scene, the action, what we're seeking, go right for the point. So we tend to skip very important things like matters of the heart or genealogies, even in the New Testament, uh, or uh, predictable things that we think, okay, we know what's going to be said here, so we kind of skim over it, or maybe it affects your prayer like it does mine sometimes, where you, you just, prayer becomes asking, because that's the point, right? You're getting to the point. If we're honest, cut to the chase Christianity, which I think we're all tempted with and I find in my own heart, does not appreciate the Old Testament. And, and if I'm even more honest with you, I'll say cut to the chase Christianity does not appreciate the Old Testament when, when we come to think about the Holy Spirit. If I were to kind of list my top five passages on the Holy Spirit, Maybe, maybe one would be in the Old Testament, right? So there's a real temptation to just kind of cut to the chase, especially maybe if the goal is the Holy Spirit, to, to neglect the Old Testament. And yet, we want to consider, uh, as you can see in your program, the Old Testament, especially the Spirit's role in the Old Testament. And to do that, I want to just challenge you on, on one thing as we begin. And, and I just thought of this again in, my own, in terms of my own walk, right? I, I have a desire to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I have a desire to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I have a desire to uh, receive the gifts from the Holy Spirit and exercise those. I have a desire to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And these are good desires. But I do find in my, in my heart a desire to cut to the chase. So I focus then on sanctification, a good thing, Fruit bearing, that's a good thing. The gifts, that's a good thing. And I forget the source. I, I neglect the kind of mystery. I neglect the Holy Spirit. And I say, no, these are the things I want. Give me the results. And so I, I cut to the chase. And I tend to focus on these things without ever, getting to know, without ever getting to know the one from whom I must receive them. As we come to the Bible, it's been said that the Holy Spirit is always pointing, Right? He's in the background, he's humbly pointing to the work of Yahweh and he's pointing to the work of Christ and yet he is a person as we've been challenged already and so we can know him and I want to ask you as we begin, do you know the person of the Holy Spirit? The one who brings all these blessings as we've been challenged to us. My contention is that you and I uh, struggle with cut to the chase Christianity and so we neglect the Old Testament and we neglect 
the study of the Holy Spirit, especially in the Old Testament, and yet that's what we want to do. And so as I, as I thought through our time together, I thought in terms of just a good-sized dose against that. Right, we're going to spend the next half hour, 40 minutes, just taking a solid dose from the Old Testament to fight against that tendency that I find in my own heart and I suspect you find in yours to cut to the chase. So we are not going to take the direct route. We're not going to, you know, here's Acts 2, you know. No, we're, we're going we're gonna to take the longer route and, and develop and understand, get to know this person, the Holy Spirit. I think Chris Wright has a wonderful book on uh, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It gets it about right when he says this. We could not know the Holy Spirit clearly apart from Christ in the New Testament. I think we all agree with that. But we can know him in all his majesty and biblical divine fullness only through the Old Testament as well. So if, you, if we want to really know him, we need to really consider what the Old Testament has to say about the Holy Spirit. As I was listening to Ryan earlier, I was waiting for the Warfield quote because I read Ferguson as well and, and he gave this wonderful Warfield quote and, and, and I'm going to give it and maybe the next guy's going to give it as well. You'll hear it four times today. It's really helpful. But I, I want to give it just, just so we don't miss and I want just this image for your visual learners out there to, to help enlighten what we're, what we're about to consider together. The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before. You following? But it brings, uh, it brings into clearer view much of what, what, what is in it but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but is only perfected, extended, and enlarged. So this morning, I want us to consider three points together. So if you're taking notes, these are going to frame our, our discussion here of the Old Testament. And you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and first we want to consider that the Holy Spirit creates life. And under that, we're going to consider that the Holy Spirit creates physical life for all, and then we'll look at the fact that the Holy Spirit creates spiritual life for his people. But in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, we read this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Ruach of God, right? We've already heard this. The Ruach of God. This is this wind, breath, spirit. Has a good bit of continuity with Numa in the New Testament, as has been mentioned. So here, I think it's right, your translation probably has an uppercase S on spirit, right? The spirit of God. And it's hovering, right? That's not what wind does. Right? So I think, I think it's right for us to say this is something the spirit does and is just kind of laying the groundwork for what the spirit is gonna do in verses three through the end of the chapter of ordering things. 
And again, we've already heard of the Spirit's work of ordering in creation, right? The Spirit brings order and life to all of God's creation. So I want to stop and ask what's already been asked, but ask it maybe in a little different nuance here. Who is this? Who is this Spirit of God? If we read through our Old Testaments, we'll see this phrase, Spirit of God, Spirit of Yahweh, this Spirit from God. Who, who is it? So we struggle I think as English speakers, to see the connection between wind and breath and spirit. I think we can see the link between wind and breath pretty easy. Air is moving, right? But spirit just seems other. And we can be tempted to think that the, the point primarily is material, immaterial. So spirit being immaterial. But I think, again, as has already been brought out helpfully, I think we want to think more in terms of power, activity, less in terms of immaterial, right? So this ruach of God is this this movement, this activity, this power of God. And so we can hear in Micah 3.8 this, true prophet is going to be empowered, right? Listen for this. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord, So the Ruach of Yahweh in this passage here means the empowering of Micah the prophet. Or we could go to Isaiah 31 where we have this interesting, listen carefully, the Egyptians are man and not God. So you see a contrast there. The Egyptians are man and not God and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So there's a contrast between man and God and between flesh and spirit. And Isaiah isn't saying that the Egyptians' horses are physical. He is saying that they're powerless. They are, they are powerless. They are not mighty. They, they do not have true ruah. They do not have true power. They do not have the Lord's presence. Or elsewhere in Isaiah, we can read this. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. This power, this breath, this activity of God. So we go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and we want to say, who is this spirit of God? So of God tells us, okay, it's of divine origin. We're just starting real basic here. All right, this, is, this, is a, this is a spirit, this is a power and activity from God. So the Holy Spirit is God's spirit of holiness. But then I ask the question, can we find here a distinct person? The Holy Spirit. Maybe later in the chapter we have hints of this. Let us, let us, there's a plurality there. Maybe this is the second member of the Godhead that's introduced that produces the us later in the chapter. But but I think you see the tension here, right? Who is this spirit of God? Is, Is it just a power in the Old Testament? Is it just a power or is it a person? So we can understand when when Jewish writers write this, the spirit of God referred to in the Bible, alludes to his energy. You see that? So they're going to say, one God and the spirit of Yahweh 
is actually this kind of energy. In other words, according to the rabbis, this is Averbeck, although the Spirit of God is of divine origin, this does not mean that there is a Holy Spirit as a divine person. So they'll say divine origin, but not a divine person. And so, and so again, I ask, in Genesis 1-2, and we could look at this kind of wording consistent throughout the Old Testament, is, is it a person? Do we find the person of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Or is the Spirit a mode of God's being? So we have the arm of God, we have the Spirit of God. His activity may be pictured in that. Well, you've already heard a bit from uh, a, few, a few helpful quotes from Sinclair Ferguson, and he's helpful here again, and he encourages us to ask three questions. These are questions that I came to because I was struggling with this. I'm saying, I, I don't want to read Holy Spirit into places where he isn't, and yet I want to see the Holy Spirit everywhere he is. So, so how, do, how do I know when, when the English translators were right to say spirit? How do I know when they were right to capitalize spirit? How, how can I determine this? And, and if you're taking notes, maybe this will be helpful for you. There's just three really basic questions. Number one, is the activity of the spirit divine activity? Is the activity of the spirit divine activity? Yes, right? The Spirit of God does what only God can do, ordering creation. We can list, we can go all over the Old Testament and list divine attributes ascribed to this Spirit, like Psalm 139, right? He's everywhere. You can't get away from the Spirit. So divine, yes. Is the activity, second question, of the Spirit personal activity? Is it personal in some sense? Well, we can find all sorts of examples where it is. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh is is acting personally. He's relating personally. Only, Only a personal spirit can relate in this kind of relational way. And then the third and most crucial question, and this is the this is the challenging one here. Is the activity of the Spirit hypostatically distinct. Now that's Ferguson. Let me, let me translate that. Is the activity necessarily done by a distinct person of the Godhead? So divine, yes. Person, yes. But is it just the arm of the Lord? Is it just an expression of Yahweh? Or is this a distinct person? Hypostatically distinct, as he says it. And I think there's hints that, that it is, and yet we shouldn't demand that from every text. This is what I mean by that. So we can go to the Old Testament and we can go elsewhere. Go with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. You can just listen if you'd like. Isaiah chapter 11. We have hints within the Old Testament that fulfillment, that the fullness of the Spirit will not be known until a future time, until really the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the new covenant in the New Testament. And so in Isaiah 11, again, a familiar passage, let's just look at it together. Verses one and two we read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Old Testament points beyond itself for fullness. 
In light, we could say, in light of the Old Testament's new covenant promises, which we'll look at some of those in a little bit, we can begin to see that the Spirit's activity in the new covenant will be more than merely an extension of the presence of God. It will be a personal indwelling of the distinct person, the third member of the Trinity. So, that was Genesis 1-2, God creates physical life. And then we just spent a little time thinking through this member of the Trinity, this individual, this person who has personhood and who is hypostatically distinct, And now I want to kind of jump back into my outline and and keep moving forward. So not only does he create physical life for all, but he also creates spiritual life for his people. And again, another challenge awaits us here. Kaiser puts it this way. One of the most important yet the most notoriously difficult aspects of salvation in the Old Testament is to describe the precise work of the Holy Spirit in the individual's exercise of regeneration and sanctification in that Testament. And I want to just say up front here that whether you like the word or not, and I I understand if you're uncomfortable with the word, I think we must see that God by the Spirit is regenerating, bringing new life to individuals in the Old Testament. He brings new spiritual life. And And I think there's several ways that we can see that. I think the fundamental way that I would want to argue, we're not going to spend any time really on this, is If you believe what we've already heard, and if we believe what I think we hold in common about man's corruption, about man's depravity, I think it's just a necessary result or condition that man needs to be regenerated. Man needs new life. Death marks us, marks Old Testament believers, marks New Testament believers, marks everyone who's in Adam, and so we need regeneration it's necessary and yet we can find terms for we don't find regeneration but we can find terms that kind of point to this idea even in the old testament i want you to listen as i read a few of these some pointing forward to this but i think also speaking to the reality of it and again we've heard some of these already this morning and i will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will restore the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's Ezekiel 36. Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you might live. Jeremiah 9. Behold, these days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Or Ezekiel 44, beginning in verse 6, And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, Enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. You broke You have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations and you have not kept charge of my holy things but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. 
So I think regeneration of the heart was necessary and it was a reality in the Old Testament. So we could say that the Holy Spirit then creates spiritual life for his people. Think just for a minute with me of John chapter 3. Right? This is Nicodemus. Again, we've already heard this. We won't linger here. But the issue is being born again. And it's a, it's a vital issue. And then, right after the passage that was read to us earlier, we find this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand the importance of the new birth. In fact, being a ruler of the Jews and a teacher of Israel, Jesus expected, rightly, Nicodemus to understand the necessity of the Holy Spirit in regeneration on the basis of the Old Testament's teaching prior to the writing of the New Testament, prior to the cross. And so we see that the Holy Spirit creates physical life. And the Holy Spirit creates spiritual life for his people in the Old Testament. And this is what the Spirit does today, right? Creating life. He creates life in our world and he creates life in our hearts. So let's move now to our second point. The Holy Spirit sustains life. Sustains physical life for all and spiritual life for his people. Would you turn with me to Psalm 104? Psalm 104, the psalmist is gonna uh, connect the Holy Spirit with this wonderful doctrine of providence. And we can think many things when we think providence, but I wanna encourage you to not stray far from just the, the simple idea that God provides. So what is God's providence? That's God's provision. It's God's orchestrating, often through means, for the provision of his people. And so this is a way in which we see the Holy Spirit. Certainly this isn't emphasized in the Old Testament, but it is here, I think, and and so we want to note it here. His role in sustaining life through providence, physical life. So Psalm 104, beginning in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures, innumerable living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand... They are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away your breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So here, God's providence is God's provision by his spirit for his creation. And he does it through his spirit, and he does it for all of us. And Jesus talks about this, right? Reign on the just and the unjust. But we want to move now, not just the spirit sustains physical life, but also spiritual life. Spiritual life. How? How does the Holy Spirit, particularly in the Old Testament, sustain spiritual life? Or, 
were Old Testament saints sustained in their spiritual life through indwelling. That is, did the Holy Spirit indwell common Old Testament believers subsequent to their regeneration? And we could give nuance and their spectrum, and I, I get all of that. There's basically two answers, yes and no. Well, that's helpful, right? So either God sustained life by his spirit through indwelling or through some other way. Either there's continuity at this point with the Holy Spirit between the Testaments or there is some bit of discontinuity. And I'll just say, Reformed folks, as well as the Reformers, as well as even dispensationalists, find themselves on both sides, right? So not, agreement does not reign here, but I'm, I'm gonna just kind of lay out the argument uh, and, and, uh, and you'll be able to tell really clearly, I think, which one I'm gonna try to argue for, but I, I wanna try to give really kind of the best, the best kind of points uh, for each. And so I'll have kind of three points towards yes, Old Testament believers were sustained in their faith, in their spiritual life, through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and then, and then we'll, we'll give a couple uh, answering no. So, first, uh, yes. And I want to just give kind of three on each of these, uh, three kind of key arguments. All right, and we'll move through these quickly, but I, I think they'll be helpful as we seek to understand the Spirit's work in sustaining spiritual life for his people in the Old Testament, and then the implications just run us towards the New Testament, and then we'll be done. First, the position, so this is an argument towards indwelling, universal amongst believers in the Old Testament, permanent indwelling. They'll say that the passages that speak of the New Testament coming upon and then leaving individuals, like Saul and Samson, like many of the judges, the kings, refer to the ministry of the Spirit to empower these, to empower for specific events. And this is kind of agreed upon by both sides, but I want to kind of clarify here. So they'll say that these instances are equipping for service, not salvation. So service is what's in focus, and the national good, not just individual's relationship with the Lord, is what is in mind. And so some, to argue against indwelling, will say, well, uh, well, look, you know, they, they feared losing the spirit. They, they, there seems to be a spirit coming and going. Not everyone had it. And they'll say, so clearly not everyone was indwelt. And then these folks who say, will say, no, 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 you, you're confusing the two. There's two different things. One is an indwelling by all that's permanent, and the other is this kind of coming and going. Uh, that's kind of first argument they put forward is, hey, those are two different things just because we can agree to that too, doesn't mean that no one had it uh, as permanent indwelling. Second, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is seen as a necessary condition for ongoing life in regeneration. So I've said that based on total depravity that regeneration is necessary, and some will say, well, if you have regeneration, indwelling goes with it. So if you have regeneration, you must have this ongoing indwelling. Regeneration requires indwelling and the, and, and the two cannot be separated. So this second one is an argument from linking, right? Linking, regeneration, and indwelling. And the third is similar, right? Some might push back and say, okay, couldn't he sustain this life some other way? So regenerated by the Spirit, but then sustained some other way than indwelling. To which those who argue for indwelling say, the only example we have in the whole Bible of indwelling is 
the New Testament. Or I should say the only example we have in the whole Bible of sustaining by the Spirit is indwelling. So God must have indwelt his Old Testament believers in order to sustain them in their faith. I think those are three, not all three, but maybe three of the main arguments for those that say sustaining or indwelling in the Old Testament. All right, now I want to argue uh, myself. This is, I'm going to land in the second position, uh, but I'm also going to, I just want to note just kind of two of the best reasons why uh, I think this is the case, why I don't think they were universally and permanently indwelt in the Old Testament. Uh, that's not the point of my talk, but I just want to say that, that clearly. Uh, so first, Jesus in John 14, and you can turn there with me, Jesus in John 14 draws a distinction between the Spirit coming upon, which I think would be analogous in some ways to Saul, Samson, others, and the Spirit dwelling within. So Jesus draws a distinction between coming upon and dwelling within. And we want to note the the nature of this distinction. So I'm going to read John 14, beginning of verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That last phrase is important. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's a distinction between this coming upon, which was true of his audience, the disciples here, and a in that seems to be yet future when Jesus is speaking. Or John 7. Uh, I'll begin reading in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So I think we find the Spirit of truth within, or sorry, with the disciples, but that the Spirit would be, after the glorification of Christ, and at Pentecost, in the disciples. So the Spirit seems to dwell with or among believers, Prior to Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit, another helper at Pentecost seems to be with and among believers prior to this. This would include, I think, Old Testament believers. So this dwelling with or among is contrasted with dwelling in or in dwelling. Okay, so let me just do a little... Q&A here, I'll ask the question and then I'll provide the answer just so you can make sure you're, you're following me here. How did God dwell in his people in the Old Testament? In their midst. And I'm not gonna make the argument, but the argument could be made particularly in the tabernacle and in the temple, in their midst. How did God sustain the faith of the Old Testament believers? Well, through his presence in their midst and we can see elsewhere by his life-giving word. Spirit and the word going together in hand in hand. God always doing his work in his way by the word through his spirit. So this distinction in John 14, John 7 is I think an argument for them not being indwelt. Second, the promise of the new covenant is the universal and permanent indwelling of the spirit. This is what makes the new covenant new 
I would argue. So, Jeremiah 31, listen to this universal nature as well as in Joel, but we won't go there. So, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and I shall no longer, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For they shall all know me. So Jeremiah 31 speaks of this universal regeneration under the new covenant in contrast to the regeneration of only the believing remnant uh, among God's people under the old covenant. All right. Or Ezekiel 36, we've already heard from this passage. I will cleanse, or, I sp- or sorry, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So regeneration. And then verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you, indwelling a new heart coupled with a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit within God's people, I think is the newness of the new covenant. So, were the Old Testament saints sustained through indwelling? That is, did the Holy Spirit indwell common Old Testament believers? I think the best answer is no. I'm happy to talk with you about that after. I I think there's value in the other position, and uh, I I just wanted to argue for one uh, during my time here. And yet... Uh, I think as we think through the Old Testament, we should think, okay, the Spirit of Yahweh, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, God himself was with them. He was in their midst. He was near to them. They, they had him, if you will. And then my third and final point, and this is briefly, and we've already touched on several of these, is the Holy Spirit gives gifts, Right? And we've, we've already heard a summary of this. I won't linger long there. We could go to Numbers 11 where the Holy Spirit is given a gift to Moses and then that spirit is shared uh, with these 70 elders. We could go to different passages uh, throughout the Old Testament narrative and see this again and again that the spirit is a giver of gifts. Spirit is a giver of gifts and we find this again in, in the New Testament, in the epistles, in the church. The spirit gives gifts to his people except he doesn't give Gifts specific to some. He gives specific gifts to all his people in the new covenant. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul can write to each, right? To each one of you. If you're a believer here, if you're in Christ, you have a gift from the Spirit. But then, I want to just end on this note. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts. And I just don't want us to, to lose the reality that the Holy Spirit has given us the greatest gift. And the greatest gift the Holy Spirit could give us is himself. He's given us himself. The greatest gift he could, he could offer, the blessing of God's presence, which, which Israel knew as they were encamped near the tabernacle and as they lived and journeyed towards and even just prayed towards the temple, the blessing of God's presence that they knew is now Ours in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in the Holy Spirit. Only 
In light of the New Testament can we see this glorious reality and only in Christ can we receive this best possible gift, God himself. So we could put it this way, right? Christmas is coming, right? We love Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, we, we are here this morning to just be remind, just remind ourselves and take great joy in the fact that we actually have not just God with us, but we have God within us. We've received another comforter. He, he is within us. He is in our midst to bless us. God with us and the person of Christ is humbling. He humbled himself and yet God within us in the person of the Holy Spirit is absolutely remarkable. You are the temple. You, you are the temple. Just let, just let that rest on you. God's presence is in the midst of, no, actually within his people. Praise the Lord. Let, let, let's, not, let's not neglect this gift. We can seek the gifts of the Spirit. We can seek the fruits of the Spirit. But let's not forget that the Spirit himself is a gift. Let's pursue him. Let's know him. Let's, let's commune with him. The Spirit certainly, as we open our Bibles, is found again and again pointing to the works of the Lord. Yahweh, pointing to the works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, we have been given him. He dwells in our midst, not just corporately, but individually. So do you know the one whom you have within you? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know this one who is so rich to bless, who is so near this one who comforts, this one who aids, this one who illuminates, who guides, who directs. Let's, let's not neglect, let's not neglect the giver in pursuit of his gifts. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we are humbled that your glory, your activity, your power that was on display again and again and again in the creation and the sustaining of all life, both physical and spiritual, in the Old Testament, that that, that, that spirit, that ruah, dwells in us as believers. In Christ, we have received the greatest of gifts. And though the gifts of the Spirit are many, and they are great, Father, would you help us? Would you come and enliven in us a desire? Would you help us not to neglect the giver of those gifts? Father, would we commune with you by your Spirit, And would we even press in and commune with the Spirit? And Father, I pray that you would aid us in these things. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. And I pray all these things in Christ's name.